And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 35. We've been making our way through Mark's gospel verse by verse. And so here we are this morning, chapter 12, verse 35. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 35, while Jesus was in the temple courts, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. If you would pray as we ask for help that we need. Father, we would pray that you would hold us fast this morning as we study your word. We know, God, that we're prone to forget it. We are prone to refuse it, to disobey or rearrange it, and um, sometimes just believe the whispers that tell us there's nothing really to this at all. It's not really relative in our lives or in the world that we live in today. And, Father, because of this and so many other things, we need your help by your Spirit. So please stir our minds, penetrate our hearts as we listen, and may Jesus to be, be to us as he is. He is breathtaking. And thank you that your love for us is never in doubt. And thank you that we can rest in Jesus right now if we're in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, tell me everything about him or them or her? It's, it's one of those phrases that I like. Maybe your son or your daughter is at that age where they're, they're dating and you find out that they have a, a friend and you're like, tell me everything about them. So what we're going to do, and I think it's fitting, and it just fits the whole tone uh, of this service, I'm going to tell you some things about Jesus Christ. Just tell you some things. First of all, Jesus Christ is incomparable, right? Jesus Christ has no equals. He is wholly good. He's God. He is the message of the entire Bible, right? So you cannot preach a book proper in the Bible unless you preach Christ, Paul said it like this, that while he was with the Corinthian church, he knew nothing that with them except Christ and him crucified. Why? Well, because everyone needs to know about Jesus or be reminded of Jesus. They need to know who he is and what he has done because he's the savior of the world. He's our only hope in this life and in death. He's the master of the universe, and he is the master over everything which extends outside the universe, which is a marvel, isn't it? So Jesus transcends everything, and be in no doubt, he loves you, and he's made promises to you. Even as we live in this broken world, in these broken way, sinning way too much, at least you're me, bodies, you're me. Therefore, because of Jesus, our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies will be cared for in brilliant ways, in brilliant ways. And you, in Christ, Christians, you'll always know his forgiveness. And you'll never, ever be treated like a sinner 
but you're going to be treated like a son or a daughter, a friend, because you're family. And right now, on our behalf, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling his kingdom. He's ruling over us, this church, and he's interceding for us. It's amazing. He's interceding for us right now as he, as he stands on our behalf before fa- the Father until he reju- returns to judge the world and renew all things. That's just a little bit about Jesus. And yet we know this, people will reject Jesus. People will lie about Jesus. People will try to discredit Jesus. This is terrible. Religious people will use Jesus kind of as like a poster boy for whatever their own personal cause is that they're promoting. Some people will prop Jesus up like some kind of superstitious luck charm, right? So you you drag Jesus in and he's your good luck charm and he can just fix everything. Some people treat Jesus like an idol, so I need a better life and I need more customers and I need more dominance in the office or dominance with the girls, dominance with the guys. And so, Jesus, will you kind of boost me up and and make me look better, stand out more? Sometimes people play fast and loose with Jesus and they quarrel with Jesus, though he would agree with us 30 times a day. And all of us here, beginning with myself, will disagree with Jesus. It's called sin. And yet, this is how good Jesus is. He responds to all that, is that he loves the world, dies for its sin. So yes, there's going to come a day where Jesus will judge the world, but he takes no pleasure in the punishment of those in the world who reject him. And because there's actually a judgment coming, Jesus' whole life was about, you see that in verse 30, chapter 12? He will obey God's great commands because everyone should. He will obey because we need Jesus to, which means Jesus and Jesus alone will perfectly, heart in, perpetually love God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and strength all the time. And he'll love his neighbor, which will include his enemies like he loves himself. That's Christian love. That's Christ. And he did this, again, because it's right. And he did this because we cannot and we would not. And he did this because he is the doctor that all of us stand in need of. And if he didn't obey perfectly and perpetually, right, if you remove that part of his life out of the equation, then we remain dead in our sins, justifiably under the wrath of God, We're doomed for eternal punishment. This is all Ephesians 2, at least most of it. Still under the dark powers of hell. And because his death on the cross, if that was Jesus, an imperfected savior, then the death would be nothing. It's deficient. It's lacking. He'd be just like any other person. Now, why do I begin this way? Well, because if you had to use one word, a Jewish word or a Greek word, to describe all that I said about Jesus, the Jewish word would be Messiah, and the Greek word would be Christ. Messiah, Christ. Now, Mark tells us, verse 34, the questions which have been directed to Jesus have now stopped. And it reads in the Greek like a dead stopped. I mean, they're done. There's, they're, Jesus can't be tricked. He's a Bible guy to the best degree. He's still in the temple, verse 35. It's a Wednesday. 
The coming Friday, Jesus will be crucified. He's been confronted by the Sanhedrin, right? They come in waves, and they come with their trick questions. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they ask Jesus a tax question. Then the Sadducees, they asked Jesus a life after death question. And then we saw last time in verse 28 comes one of the scribes who confronts Jesus with a third question. And the third question we said was more of an honest inquiry, right? Which made clear that the man had some intentions here that were actually good. So yeah, he was a scribe and he was a real Bible guy. Yes, he was religious. Yes, if you would, he was a church guy and he was humble. He was interested in the truth. However, verse 34b, he's not in the kingdom. He was close. He's agreeing with Jesus, but he wasn't converted. And it's more than likely that as Jesus was quoting the Bible and then interpreting the Bible with complete accuracy, The scribe was being struck to the heart. I mean, he had never heard those things like that before. So the law of God was finally doing in this man what it was meant to do, what it was meant to do to all of us. It was exposing his true position and his true condition before a holy God. But again, he was religious, but that wasn't enough, if you would, to take him over the top. And oftentimes, if you think about it, a religious person's first instincts when they listen to the scripture interpreted properly, which will expose our sin completely, oftentimes their first instinct is to just justify themselves, right? We've seen this all through the Gospels. I've kept a law since I was a kid. I pray, I fast, I give, I do so much, and they don't do what I'm doing, and I'm not as bad as that guy over there or that girl over there. They're a sinner, but, you know, I'm trying really hard. That is simply religious behavior. It's one of the worst sins. It's self-justification. They're just trying to justify themselves, justify why they would not need a Savior to rescue them. So people will agree with Jesus to some degree, but this man won't cry out for Jesus, right? Nice job, Jesus, with the law question. Way to go. But he won't believe that Jesus is the one who can rescue him from the sin which he has. Now, When all the questions stop, Mark tells us the class is over, right? The class has no more questions for the teacher. However, this is a good one. The teacher has a question for the class, right? His question, by the way, fits the context perfectly. It begins in verse 35. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, just a little bit of a background. I gave my first point, a great man. A great man, but you might want to scribble down, um, but no more than a man. Because that is what the Jews thought the Messiah would be. The psalm that Jesus has, is quoting from is a messianic psalm. So if you've been with us, you'll remember that this whole question and answer time began in chapter 11, verse 27. It was a question of authority. The religious leaders say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? And that these things that Jesus was doing, there was kind of like that one-day reformation and condemnation of the temple, right? He goes in there, he tips tables, he preaches, he declares things, and he says things like, you're making God's house about yourself and money and no longer about others and God. And so they asked him the question, who said you could say that? And now here in verse 35, the question and answer time ends, and Jesus asked this question about the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, why does he ask that question? Well, it was predicted that when the Messiah arrives, he's going to have authority. Authority which would include, in some way, over the temple. 
And you see, Jewish history, including many of the Jewish people of today, have widely held the same view concerning Messiah, which was this, that when Messiah comes, he's only going to be a man, just a man. Messiah would be an earthly ruler. He would have immense power, yes, influence, control, and might. But still, at the end of the day, he's just going to be a man. He's going to conquer all of Israel's enemies. He's going to fulfill the promises given in Abraham, Abraham's covenant and to Abraham's children and then expanded in the Davidic covenant. And all of the promises that were pointing to the Messiah, he would fulfill those to some degree. But again, he's just going to be human, a man, nothing more. Okay, yeah, great power, power beyond any king that the world had ever seen, but again, just a man. Now, they would underpin by quoting the promises of the Old Testament concerning the extent of the duration of the kingdom, which would transcend all the other kingdoms and all the other rulers in history. But they did not necessarily say, and this is important, that the Messiah, let me say it like this, they didn't see the the Messiah as a savior of individual souls because of sin. It, It really wasn't on their radar. They did see him as a savior of the people, the Jewish people, and he would, listen to this, he would make their lives better, he would make their nation better, and all of their enemies wouldn't be saved. They'd be destroyed, conquered. And if you think about that, it's very similar when a person, a pastor, or church tries to politicize the gospel. So there's a certain type of group of Americans, they're the good guys, and there's a certain type of Americans, they're the bad guys. And so we say, the good guys say, God help us conquer the bad guys so we can have a lovely nation. The Jews did the same thing. By the time this takes place, the, the Gentiles, who Jesus said he came to love and save and make his friends, The Jews considered their enemies, particularly the Romans. So they were saying that their enemies were also God's enemies. We know from Matthew's gospel, that's not the truth. The leaders taught that the the people should hate their enemies. God's word, the Old Testament, said nothing at all like that. And that was the problem. As a consequence, then, as they think about the Bible and their muddle-headed view of God, they did not, nor did they view Messiah as a Savior, as God in human flesh. He was, again, in the minds of many Jewish people, a man. And because of that reality, it brought them into a collision course with Jesus. That's why all this hostility in chapter 12 was there. Jesus says, Okay, this Messiah is more than a man, and they're like, no, no, he's just a man. And so, and so what Jesus does in his ministry is he exposes their theology, he exposes their hypocrisy, he sets things right in the temple, and they hated him because of the influence he had with the crowds, which diminished their influence. And then Jesus, here in 11, he publicly denounces them. And he gives a view of God that is true, and he gives a view of God's intention, which is true, and it's in direct opposition of the things that they've been teaching for quite a long time. And on top of that, 
They hated Jesus for being, they thought, a blasphemer because Jesus made it clear he was equal to God. He said, he said things like, I and the Father are one. I work and my Father's work, equating their works together. So you need to understand, the leaders never misunderstood the claim of Jesus, the divine claim of Jesus, that he was divine. They knew he claimed to be God. In fact, the entire ministry of Jesus was driving into that direction. This is the end of John's gospel, and it's a message of every gospel. I'll, I'll just quote it to you. The life of Christ, this gospel, the gospels have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Human, yes, but divine. Now, I want you to think with me. The religious leaders really had to fight to keep hold in the belief that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that the Messiah was just a man. Because it took a great deal of intellectual dishonesty to hold that line of thought because they had to get past this explosion of, Je- of the miracles of Jesus, which no one could describe other than the power of God. They tried to, on one occasion, say it was the devil's power, but Jesus kind of put that away. So he did such things that no one can do, no human could do. So I want you to think with me. Let's say you're a hardline dialectical materialist. And all that is, this is what the Sadducees were. In other words, all that exists is this material world. It's a closed universe. And so the things that can be seen and felt and experienced, the material world is the true world. Nothing beyond this world. And that material world determines how a person acts and thinks and believes and lives, right? So all there is is now, and all all that matters is now. No miracles, no life after death, nothing. I mean, seeing what they saw, they would have to admit that there was some supernatural power, power outside of nature that came through the person of Jesus in an unequaled way. I mean, they read their Old Testament. They knew the miracles that were there. However, no one had been able to do with such force like Jesus. Disease and death and demons and power over nature. And I'm not trying to be silly, but power over food, right? He takes a little handful of food and he makes it so they can feed 4,000 men plus or 5,000 men plus. So, so that kind of person would have to deal dishonest with their own line of thinking. Okay, that's a dialectical materialist. Sorry about this. The next one is, let's say they were an empiricist. So they believe this, that all knowledge and all truth is based only on your personal experience or experience derived from the senses. So what you see and what you feel and what you hear and what you touch So if you can't see it, and you can't feel it, and you can't touch it, then it can't be understood as truth. So again, the universe is closed. There's no supernatural, outside-of-nature power which can break into our world. If you can't see it, feel it, touch it, then, then it's not real. And that's what you hear a lot of times from people with that kind of bent in these days. And this is what you need to know. Here is Jesus doing something in real time, supernatural, things outside the realm of the natural or the possible, and they can see it, they can feel it, 
They can touch it. Now what are you going to do? Here's why I walk through that. These leaders had to fight hard to hold on to their conviction that Jesus is not the Messiah and the Messiah is just a man. A great deal of intellectual dishonesty was taking place here. See, that's why we said at Easter time, science is not the only discipline which can give us truth because truth can be discovered in history and truth can be discovered in jurisprudence as well. So stay with me. The question Jesus asked fits the context perfectly because this is an authority question or who, and, and who or maybe what will the Messiah be like? Is he just a mere man or is he something more? And Jesus is laying down the framework that the Messiah is not less than a man, but he's more than a man. He's the God-man. Now, the Jews believe, and some still believe today, that the Messiah would not only be a man, but he would be a man from the line of David, somewhat like David, and that like David, he would defeat all of Israel's foes and bring back this glorious kingdom fulfillment, heaven on earth. And the leaders certainly didn't believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of that messianic hope. So they had the terminology right, Messiah or Christ, but their expectations were completely wrong. Messiah would be a man, but no more than a man, a man from the line of David. A great man, yes, but no more than a man, and it's not Jesus. And just in passing, would you just think with me again? It seems to me how short-sighted and selfish that kind of thinking was. This is like Hezekiah in the Old Testament. Look him up. He was, he was a good guy for a while. He ends his life in totally, totally selfish ways. Because this is my question. Okay, so what happens when the Messiah dies? You say he's a man. He's going to die. And so do you just want all your goodness and dominance for a couple or maybe three generations and that's it? Right? What about your children's children's children? Don't you care about them? And what about their children? But you see, here we are again. The religious mind is typically very short-sighted, extremely selfish, extremely self-centered, and their concern for the future typically ends when they die, you know, unless they want a statue with their name plastered on the forehead, right? That's, that's religion. That's about as the extent of it. They're going to have a Messiah. They're going to have a two, three generations possibly of, yay, we're like awesome. And then what about the future? Don't you care about the future? Don't you care about other people? Don't you care about other nations? Don't you? Apparently not. Second point. A great question, but again, no answer. And the reason why this is a great question is that it's a rhetorical question. I mean, Jesus never really answers the question. Verse 35, how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ Messiah is the son of David? That's the question, and we know that Jesus is essentially asking, okay, how can Messiah only be a mere man? Right? That's the context. How can Messiah only be a mere man? And I do not think Jesus is trying to catch them out, you know, kind of give them a, a taste of their own medicine. This seems to me more like an invitation question, and this is why. At verse 34, do you see it there? When Jesus told the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God, he says it to the scribe because the man is beginning to see that the kingdom 
issues were spiritual, heart issues. They were not external issues. They were internal issues. He had all the externals right, all the sacrifices right, all the ceremony right. I mean, that's kind of easy to do. But he had a problem of the heart. So Jesus knew at least one of these scribes, these teachers, was not far from the kingdom of God. And here, if nothing more, is an invitation to embrace Jesus Christ as he actually is, the Messiah, God's Son. And besides, you see verse 31, God said, what was God's law? We are to love our neighbor, which would include our enemies, as we love ourselves. So as Jesus tells the truth here, he's just loving his enemies. In a couple of days, these guys are going to be part of the conspiracy to put them on the cross. He knows that. But he's just like giving them one more chance right up to the end. Guys, come on. We're going to, we're going to open up our Bibles, guys. We're going to read our Bibles, guys. Hey, guys, we're going to think through our Bibles, and we're going to think through Psalm 110, which Jesus quotes from, and let's find, let's find truth in the Bible. Let's find me in the Bible. What do you say? Right? Because I'm the answer to everything, including what you need. Now, when you put Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel together, the account would read just like this. Jesus asked the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The reply of the people, the son of David. Jesus replies, verse 34b, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. And then Jesus quotes from a well-known psalm. It's a messianic psalm, a psalm foretelling the, the Messiah, who will be and what he'll do. Psalm 110, first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Do you see it there? How then can he be his son? Now, what we have here is the the logical dimensions of God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. The weight of the authority lies in verse 36. Do you see it there? Speaking by the Holy Spirit. In other words, everybody knows this is an authoritative text. The teachers of the law would not question this text, all right? Now, when Jesus says what he says, he's not saying that the Messiah, the Christ, is not the son of David. He knows that he is. However, he is saying, and he wants his listeners to be led to the conclusion that he's not just the son of David, that he's both the son of man and the son of God. And that's why Jesus is able to take verse 1 of Psalm 110, pointing that out that in this passage, the Messiah is referred to as David's Lord and not David's son, right? So it'd be like this. Hey, guys, you've said for a while Messiah will be David's son, as in he'll be just a man. Now I'm quoting to you from the Bible, Psalm 110, there's no reference here of a Messiah being the son of David, but it does say he is David's Lord. Question, how can the great king speak of his son as his Lord? In fact, the original in the Hebrew, it read like this. Yahweh means our sovereign God. Yahweh said to Adonai, my Lord. Yahweh said to, to my Lord. So the question is, who's God talking to? Is he talking to himself? <laughs> no, he's talking to his son, the Messiah. Therefore, by rights, David's son could only be his Lord if He existed before David, and he existed after David. There's only one person that I know like that, Jesus. So the question, verse 37, David himself calls him 
Lord, how then can he be his son? Almost seemed like a riddle. Right? So, so what do you do? You're in this passage and you're fresh into it and you're like, okay, why do I need to know that, right? Well, one of the things you do is you go back to first principles of biblical interpretation. And so this is what you do. You're reading your Bible and you're concerned about the real time context and then you're concerned about the entire context of the whole gospel. Now, this is important. The current context, as we learn, is the religious leaders think Messiah is just a man. A son of David, full stop. However, in the wider context, the whole gospel, Mark the gospel, realizing that this can be a difficult one, does what a lot of other books do. And he begins to drop clues all through the book. So as you pull the lens of your camera back and you trace the Messiah line through the gospel, you don't just need a microscope and just to study this text specifically, you you need to take some steps back and say, okay, how does this fit in the whole gospel? What's the larger context? For example, the very first verse of the very first chapter, Mark gives us this, this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ Right? Jesus the Messiah. So Mark's like, this whole book is based on the fact that Jesus is Messiah, that he is the Christ. And then later on, he says, the Son of God. Then in chapter 9, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? And they give a few answers, and Jesus says, okay, guys, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter says what? You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. So between chapters 1 and chapters 9, Mark records for us in the words of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, things only a God could do, right? Miracles that only some supernatural power can do, underpinning Mark's assessment that Jesus is the Messiah, underpinning Peter's words, Jesus is the Messiah. Finally, we'll get to it eventually in chapter 14, the question of the council, just flat out. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. I am. Therefore, he says to the religious leaders, guys, you believe the Bible. Guys, you know your Bible. Question, what's going on here? Because it seems to me Psalm 110 is saying Messiah is way more than a man. He is from the line of David. He is the son of David. But the Bible won't leave Messiah there. Now, when I was writing this out, I got to the point where I'm thinking, all right, there's got to be some people thinking, oh, oh, this is really nice and I appreciate all your effort, Joe. (laughs) But what's the big deal, right? Why does this matter? Right? This sounds to me like a bunch of poindexters arguing about words and you seem like a poindexter, so I can kind of see why you like it. But why does this matter? Right? Help me to take it outside the place. There's lots of reasons it matters. I'll give you two. One, if you take your eyes off of Jesus when you read your Bible, you'll never understand the Bible. And the Bible is just going to seem to be like one more holy book telling you, you're not that good, here's how to be better, and here's how. Or we'll twist the Bible like a wax nose, making the Bible say whatever you need it to say, or whatever you want it to say. And history and the internet shows us that's true. So when you take your eyes off of Jesus when you read your Bible, you are doomed. And again, this is another basic rule of interpretation. We interpret the New Testament in light of the foundations of the Old, and we interpret the Old Testament with all those lines pointing forward to the New Testament, seeing everything in the Old fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you like, Jesus is the answer to the moral law. 
Jesus is the answer to the ceremonial and civil law. You know that. He's the only hope for God's people. We know that. But you know when you preach through First and Second Kings and, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, and you see all these kings, and you say, this is the one. Nope. This is the one. Nope. The best of these men are men at best. Even David and his wonder boy Solomon, right? He's got all the gold in the world. He's got all the wisdom in the world. He's got all the girls in the world, right? But it's a failure. It's a flat-out failure. Is there any hope for Israel? Is there any hope for me? Because I have a lot of good stuff, and yet I still do bad stuff. What's going to happen to me? Google Maps is fun to play with. <laughs> so, you, you know, there's a plus and the minus, and, you, and I think it's the, the minus where you keep pulling back until you can see the whole world. So you find out where Grand Rapids is, and then you see Minnesota and the United States, and you see North and South America until you see the whole world. Stand far enough back from the Bible, and you, you will see who? You'll see Christ. Because the whole Bible is about Christ. All of it come pointing to him, and all of it, if you would, coming from him. Which is why when you take your eyes off Jesus, you'll lose your way around the Bible. That's not reason number one why this matters. Reason number two's, two is, if Jesus is lying here, if the Holy Spirit is lying here, if Mark is lying then, and Messiah is just a man, then we are all toast. And why are we here? Why are we here? What hope do we have now or after death? Our sin's penalty is still on us. Sin's power is still over us. That whole little kids in the kingdom stuff, that was a big fat lie. We're not made anything. We're still creepy and filled with sin. But you see, the story of the Bible is the story of history. It's the story of men and women in our arrogance putting ourselves where God deserves to be. But the good news is that God puts himself in the person of Jesus on account of our sins where we deserve to be. We want to take his throne. He wants to take our punishment. We sin. We suffer for it. You see, that's why this little section is so important. I understand it can be hard to follow and all that kind of stuff, but without Jesus, we're toast. If Jesus isn't God and isn't man, <laughs> what? What? So this Jesus better be something. And you see, think with me. I thought about this this morning. One of the reasons why the Bible, page by page, keeps telling us about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us, all eventually pointing to the cross and things coming out of the cross, is because God knows how prone we are to wonder from the cross. We are so prone to wonder from it. So we need to be told again and again, hey, you're not that good, but Jesus is. Hey, be careful. Again and again. So this mystery of who this Messiah is is solved in what? It's solved in the incarnation. In the incarnation. You mean like Christmas? Yeah, 71 days, by the way, until Christmas will be here. So the answer to the question which Jesus never gives is that David's son, which David's Lord, because he existed before David and he exists after David. That in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. So this question from Jesus isn't meant to give those religious guys, again, a taste of their own medicine. You're like, I'll outsmart 
you. And this is not a riddle like, you know, what's black and white and red all over, right? What is that? The newspaper? No. This question concerns heaven and earth. And this question concerns the whole human race. If no Messiah, as Jesus describes, then there is no salvation. And so what does the Bible affirm? That David's Lord was the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes from the line of David, and he comes from heaven. In a few months, if you're in home groups, you're going to be reading through 2 Timothy 2, and you're going to read this passage. Mark, or excuse me, Paul does this often. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Romans chapter 1, 3, Paul, the same thing regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Paul doing? He's underpinning that this Christ, this Messiah, is the Son of Man and the Son of God. And can you imagine if a Jewish person is reading this text unconverted, then at least the alive text is going to stir some things. I hear these Christians say over and over again that Messiah is more than a man, that he is God and he is Jesus. Doing exactly what the Bible did to the scribe in verse 28. Stirring the heart. Animating some questions. Now we need to go. Don't you find it almost hilarious? Verse 37 there. The large crowd listened to him, Jesus, with delight. Why do you think they listened to Jesus with delight? Because they finally, they got, they're cornered. <laughs> Jesus is not laughing, but the crowd's like, okay, guys, wonder boys, give us an answer. No answer. Let's close with this. The amazing truth of these verses is only going to be discovered when God opens our heart to it. Because if God doesn't do that, there's nothing there. Now, why do I say that? Charles Simeon, he was a vicar in Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge. He served there 54 years during the 19th century. He used to use this illustration of a sundial often. So this is what he would say. When a sundial exists on a cloudy day, all you have is a pointer and numbers, and they don't mean a thing. They don't mean anything. But if the sun breaks through the clouds and the sun shines on the sundial, the finger points and the numbers have meaning and the numbers have a message, right? So all summer long, when my wife and I would go to Tioga Beach, she would ask me what time it is, and I said, don't look at your phones, and I'd get out a stick in the ground and make my own little sundial. And I'd say, oh, honey, it's 3.30. And she would look and she'd say, well, you moron, it's 3 o'clock. But close enough, all right? Don't do that anymore. But the point is, when the sun shines on the sundial, it's going to work. So we come to our Bibles. Listen. We come to our Bibles and our minds are clouded by sin. This is man as man. Whether it's indifference or it's active, active rebellion, it doesn't matter. And as a result, someone tries to read you the Bible or your friends say, come to our Bible study and, and you're there, but nothing ever happens. Or your parents say, you should read your Bible at night. And you try your level best to read your Bible at night and get animated like they're animated, but nothing happens. It just disappoints you. You say, I don't understand it. What's the problem? You're in the clouds. But if the sun parts the clouds and then begins to, if you would, point the finger... And you see, that's why when Peter said in response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
Jesus does not respond, nice job, Peter. You're a real smart one. No, this is what he says. Oh, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. You are blessed for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. But my father in heaven blessed you with this knowledge. Well, maybe Peter was really good. No, a few seconds later, Jesus is going to call Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You see, here's the deal. We are so blind, we cannot even discover our blindness until God shows us our blindness. If it's, it's like when you're asleep and someone pokes you, and you wake up and you say, oh, was I asleep? Yeah, but you didn't know. Why? Because you were asleep. You were asleep. And you didn't know you were asleep until what? Someone poked you and awakened you. And love words, the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures is the same Holy Spirit who illumines, who awakens the minds of the readers of Mark's Gospel. That's us. And so at the end of the day, we say, you know what? I once was blind. We sing this here, and now I see. Why? Well, that's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but I was found. I was blind, but now I see. We didn't rub our eyes. It was rubbed for us. And would to God he awaken any of us who need to be awakened this morning. Let's pray. Father, surely one of the great tragedies of the fall is we we get tired of familiar glories. And so if that's the case, we would ask you to forgive us. This is good news. The person of Jesus put before us, our Savior, dig, dig our roots deep in him and nothing else. And we pray, Father, that we would be animated to, about Jesus to the degree that we should be. That it would be easier, find it easier that Jesus would be off our tongues and we wouldn't say religious things as much as we would say Jesus things as we talk to each other, as we talk to the world. Father, we would need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that and we would plead to that end now. And finally, Father, thank you that we can rest in Jesus. The Son of Man who is the Son of God made it so. So help us to find peculiar graces this week that we can just enjoy and embrace all connected to the person and work of Christ, and certainly not our own. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours, both now and forevermore. Amen.